clear night, if the mind were clear, if the mind were simple, if the mind were bare of all but the most classic necessities, wooden spoon, knife, mirror, cup, lamp, chisel, a comb passing through hair beside a window, a sheet thrown back by the sleeper, a clear night in which the mind bursts forth from the hidden depths of Wormtown like the mighty shy halud, a night the woman imagining all this calls 508, a show about Worcester. That one was awful too, Mike. It's February the 5th, 2020. I'm Mike Benedetti. This is Brendan Mellican. And our guest today is John Aylward, Clark University professor, artistic director of the H.A. Ensemble, pianist, composer, Cambridge resident. Mm-hmm. Cambridge you? resident? He didn't tell me that part. Well, I just moved to Northampton, actually. You skipped over Worcester. You're, I did. <laughs> what, what's I did. that all about? I, well, I got married, and my wife works at Smith. Okay. So um, I... Um, you get a lot of Smith grads as uh, viewers of the show, you know. Okay. Not a joke. Well, hello, Smith yeah. grads. There you are. Um, yeah, so we moved out to Northampton. Was she not aware that Worcester is uh, the happening place that everyone is supposed to be moving I, to from uh, the other side of 128? I, I made a pitch. Okay. <laughs> I made an argument for it, and, uh, you know, um, I learned that uh, maybe you're right. <laughs> the magic words of marriage. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> said, maybe you're right. So, there I am. I'm in Fair enough. I love Northampton, but I love Worcester. I get, actually, I get the best of both worlds. I get to be here to work and uh, play and teach. And then uh, I get the uh, the Smith vibe in Northampton uh, on the weekends. I like Northampton, too. Yeah, I've got nothing bad to say about that area at all. Let's I see, can come up with something. Happy Valley. Yeah. You know, Happy Valley. It's a, it's a great place. Yeah. And, you know, Worcester, too. I mean, Massachusetts. You can't lose. You, you've been at Clark for a decade now? Ten years? Yeah. I started in 2008. <laughs> What's going on musically at Clark these days? Well, I am. <laughs> All right. I mean, uh, what else? You're, right. You're just there. Uh, I was just there. Um, what, what's going on at Clark Musically? Well, it's really cool to be here to talk to you about it um, because I have been, you know, very invested in the Clark music scene for a long time. Uh, first as a faculty member uh, for many years and now as a faculty member, but also as a director. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm directing the um, uh, music program. And so I've had, had a very hands-on um, few years. I've worked a lot to develop the performance program and to create coursework that's connected to performance. Since it's a liberal arts college and not just a conservatory, um, there is uh, a want and a need to provide students really interesting coursework that connects performance with the liberal arts. So I've been very involved in that, teaching in the classroom about performance, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. And um, strengthening the performance part of the program in general, offering more opportunities for students to perform, and also trying to bring in really interesting talent mm -hmm. that inspires and kind of gets them moving, gets them thinking like, well, maybe I could do this. So the other thing that I did about 10 years ago when I got the job at Clark was to start a group for contemporary music, like a a nonprofit group that would um, allow me an avenue to have some of my work performed, to meet interesting performers of classical contemporary music um, here and abroad. And that is Ece. Yeah. So one really cool marriage of all of this is the ability to bring some of the musicians that I know and love and that I've worked with professionally as a composer into my work teaching to bolster the program, to get the students there thinking like, you know, this is not so far away from something that I could be doing. 
a lot of the musicians I work with in Ece are, like myself, not so far from college. So we can all kind of talk about what that's been like for us, the transition out of college and into the world. And um, I have found that that has been a really exciting part of the performance program at Clark, that it's really connected to the uh, heartbeat of the younger musician, the younger working musician, the younger professional musician. And I'm really interested in that bridge, how that works, how we can get students out into the uh, community mm -hmm. performing, yeah. how we can bring uh, bring young professionals like members of HA, but lots of other different kinds of musicians who, who, are, who are really close to that college experience, bringing them in to share what that transition's been like. And I think that that has really helped grow the program because it's really demystified the idea of being a musician. When you have younger professionals coming in, students start to think this seems pretty legit. I, I could try this myself. Yeah, like, like th this is what it would be like. These, are, these would be the challenges you're yeah. talking with people. Yeah, you're you're, people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What do you hear from students in terms of their take on uh, when they start dipping their toes in, in, in that universe of uh, being a working musician? Do, do you hear, get much feedback from them from like, their view of the region? Like, well, yeah. Oh, right. I think, I think, yeah, totally. I think that there, I, I think that m many students at Clark are not total. I mean, they're pretty smart. So first off, mm -hmm. uh, and they're very savvy. And Clark has always had a, have, Clark has always had a reputation for attracting a certain kind of um, civic minded, yeah. um, grassroots smart student. So it's not, a, it's it's not a mystery why Clarkies then would be pretty up on what's happening around the mm -hmm. scene. I think the, the the distance is how do they participate in it? They can go as audience. Mm -hmm. They can see what's happening uh, around town, but how do they get their first gig? Right, playing at that lounge or playing at the uh, 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 you know the the local bar. Sure, how do they? they it, it's just a little bit of a tweak to actually get them participating in it. Yeah. Well, that's, I guess that's what I was asking, I, wh where the question comes from. Because when I go back to my time in college, whatever that was, over 20 years ago now, the city had an incredibly vibrant but obvious music scene. And I think the music scene is still vibrant, but the market has changed so much. So instead of having like formal performance halls, like the Lucky Dog Music Hall or Ralph's is still around or whatnot, now you've got a lot of more like open mics and um, sort of like floating venues and whatnot. I, I just have to imagine it must be a nightmare to try and figure out like where those opportunities are if you're not already, you know, deep into that scene, which you're know, just speaking as a local, like Worcester can be a really tough nut to crack. Totally. The Clarkies always seem to be to excel at that, probably mm -hmm. better than any of the other colleges. They, they're always hyper engaged, but just the way the overall music market has changed in the last couple decades, yeah. I would imagine that could be a real struggle just to figure out where you're going to go to perform. Yeah, it's posed some big challenges, and I think that there's also been such an ease with which students can retreat into technology. Yeah. So they can do do their entire EP with a couple microphones in their bedroom. On SoundCloud, yeah. And it sounds great. Yeah. I mean, the technology, you'd imagine, like, where does this professionally produce? And it was just done in their house, right. in their apartment. Yeah. Because the technology is really, really good now. So Never having to sell CDs out of your trunk. Never, yeah. Uh, it's. And I think there's been a big question about, 
selling CDs and merch and what is the revenue stream? Mm -hmm. Because I think as you're getting at, a lot of those revenue streams have dried up. Sure. It, I think the open mic has basically replaced opportunities that had revenue behind them. Right. Now, now a lot of venues, and I mean, I do, I have a lot of respect for a lot of venues around town. I think it's just a global trend mm -hmm. that a lot of venues are saying, why do I need to pay for this? Yeah. People will come here and play open mics for nothing. Mm -hmm. Or, I mean, it's, it's, it's also been, I have to say, it's also been an issue on the side of the musician. If, if musicians undersell each other, mm -hmm. then it's a race to the bottom. Yeah. And basically that has been what has happened. And, and young artists come up and they see other people doing it for free and wonder, well, how do I participate in this? I have, I gotta be honest with you, I have really tried to engender in students a sense that it's, you've got to love it for more than the, any potential commercial value. Sure. Because that is so treacherous. Mm -hmm. And if it works for you, and if you are able to turn a, a profit and create a revenue stream, that's really wonderful. But you, you, you have to almost approach it from an attitude of, I am absolutely dedicated to making this a part of my life. Right. And then I'll find out if I can make a living yeah. at it. There's that balance, though, too, with understanding your value as an artist, which isn't necessarily monetary value as totally. well. Like, yeah, yeah, and those two things intersect somewhere that I've never been able to figure out. But. Me, me neither. <laughs> me neither. But I think that like, creating that awareness in students is really important so that when they're coming up as musicians, they don't lose the passion. Right, right. So they, if they're not making money gigging or if they're not selling their EP, they know that that's not the value of their work. Mm -hmm. I mean, you look at so many people who made absolutely no money, no revenue, nothing on their first couple of albums. Now we look back and we memorialize those works. Right. I mean, they're epic pieces yeah. because they didn't let market forces get in the way. I think that young artists need to be passionate about developing their voice, what they want to say, not worrying about what the potential um, costs of living yeah. are around that. And if it means they have to work uh, a job, then they should just do that job so that they can get back as soon as possible to their place, their studio, their friends, and make the art that's meaningful to them. I mean, I am a version of that myself. I compose music mm -hmm. that is performed all over the place, but I do I could not live on all of those performances alone, mm -hmm. and none of them would give me health insurance. Yeah. So I teach, and I have a wonderful life as a teacher as well. But you know, when it comes down to brass tacks, the IRS form at the end of the day, I am a teacher. Yeah, and if and then when I go out into the world, I say I'm a composer, mm -hmm. and people want to know what do you do? I say I compose music, and of course I teach. That's part and parcel. I hope all of the students that are coming up that become musicians uh, famously will also teach. Sure. Herbie Hancock teaches. I mean, you know, people like teaching. Yeah. People in the, yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an apprentice-student model. Yeah, if you have something to share, that's right. Yeah. So at this point, I feel like we have built up a great deal of anxiety or at least a certain tension in our audience members who are listening to this and they're thinking, I will support this music. I will go to these shows. I will help these students. But John, how can they do it? When are the, when when are there going to be some shows that Clark people could go to? Yeah. So Friday, um, seven thirty, Razzo Hall, right on uh, Downing and uh, Park. Mm -hmm. um, come to Clark. Uh, check out the show. We have a group of students from New England Conservatory who are going to be performing an epic work of classical music from the early 20th century by Arnold Schoenberg, uh, second Viennese school composer. Um, 
It's a work for soprano and ensemble that Schoenberg wrote, a classical composer, but he wrote this work uh, early in his life um, for, the, for a cabaret singer. Huh. So it doesn't quite have the same kind of cla uh, classical sound you, could, you would imagine. The vocalist uh, sings and speaks and talks in a kind of uh, uh, Brecht and vile kind of way you can imagine. And um, it's called Puro Lunaire. Mm -hmm. It's a work that has been kind of anthologized a lot through the 20th century. Um, and Rose, the soprano, will talk a lot about that. So it'll be an interesting uh, look into the piece and a fabulous performance. I'm excited that Clark students are going to be able to interface with a younger professional uh, from the Boston area. And I'm also excited that we can bring that regional talent from Boston right here so that you don't have to go into Boston to catch that show. It's happening. We're bringing the... Uh, artistry from that region uh, to the doorstep of the Worcester community. So it's a great opportunity to catch these players. And just to recap the details on that show, it was Friday night and where at Clark? Friday night, Razzo Hall. Time? 7.30. 7.30. Yeah. I'm going to be at this show. Come on, come I on. I promise you right now I'm going to be at this show. Um, and now we were just having we were, we were just having a really cool conversation <laughs> about radio. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I just, so the idea that I wanted to follow up on there was this thing that college radio mm -hmm. was a huge culture. Incredible. I mean, so my, okay, I don't want to cut you off, but it's like my earliest memories, my, so I'm a hip hop guy. That was okay. like late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. That was like where I kind of started yeah. finding music for myself. Okay. And without even realizing it at the time, it was all Holy Cross. Yeah. It, Holy Cross had this incredible uh, college radio station. Okay. And they, I can't remember who it was that was producing at the time. If I'm not mistaken, he's now an investment banker somewhere down in New York. But it was this guy from New York who was going to Holy Cross mm -hmm. and just had access to this incredible collection of up-and-coming yeah. hip-hop artists yeah. at, like, the heyday of, 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 of yeah. early hip-hop. Right as it, as it was happening. And it was, so I grew up over in Tatnik in Worcester, mm -hmm. and there was just something about the way, you know, nighttime weather patterns, whatever, that signal managed to get over the hill. Yeah. And I could, whether it be driving home uh, yeah. at, at night or in my bedroom, I could pick up Holy Cross's radio station, yeah. and it changed the way I viewed, you know, popular culture and music because it's it was that, not yes. anything I heard anywhere else. There was, yeah, it's access to something that is not kind of in your daily sphere. Mm -hmm. and it's coming at you from what I mean. They kind of used to call it just the un an underground. Yeah, the, the college radio station was really a music underground. Right. I had the same experience in college. I was listening to college radio and hearing all of this music I never heard on campus, or during the day, any other time. And uh, I also have a memory of, um, I guess this does date me, of um, the Susie Dunn on KXCI in okay. Tucson, Arizona, putting on uh, a, a Nirvana track and mm -hmm. saying, I just have this feeling that this is going to be the next big band. Right. No one knew about this band. <laughs> yeah. But you heard about them on college radio first. And if you turn on college radio today, the same thing will happen to you. Yeah. In 16 months, whatever you're hearing now will be, you know, signed to some label and it'll have a million hits on YouTube. It all kind of starts in these local patterns. I mean, even though things have been wildly digitized and now we're living in a more of a YouTube media era, the same idea is true that... Things happen on a local level. Yes. They happen in an under, uh, quote-unquote underground scene, and then they become known more and more and more. And yeah, that can become because you go on tour. Yep. That can come out because you have all of a sudden a million hits of a YouTube video. There's still there's still like analog ways to make that happen and digital ways to make that happen. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, 
it doesn't happen, you know, overnight. What's crazy is that then all of a sudden the media gets a hold of it and says an overnight sensation. You look at it's maybe their seventh album actually. The amount of maybe work the band, that went yeah, maybe in. The guy had three or four bands. Maybe. Mm -hmm. There's been lots of work beforehand, but then the minute they come on the scene, they're all of a sudden called an overnight sensation. It gives us the idea that things happen overnight. Yeah. But absolutely not. That's the one thing that I've, I've kind of gotten back to is trying to listen to more radio uh, for just that reason. That I, as, as a total diehard nerd, I love my technology, but the way that Google in particular has gotten so good at curating the media that comes to me through little, like my own patterns and whatnot, and I, I use uh, YouTube Music for most of my streaming, it just knows me too well. And the, the, the likelihood of something new bubbling into that feed, it's, it almost never happens. Um, I have to go out of my way to look for it, whereas I can, I can turn on a radio station at night still and have somebody who's much better at curating my interests feed me something that I wanted but didn't know I needed. Yeah, but you would never know. Yeah, the, the greatest algorithms in the world still have absolutely no idea what I want. They only know what I wanted yesterday. And those algorithms don't have access to the content yet. Right, right. Because the content hasn't been uploaded into those algorithms. Mm -hmm. So where do, where do you go to get fresh stuff and I think this is why I'm excited about the stuff we do at Clark because, again, it's just on the it's just happening on a local level. Yeah, no, I mean that's why I'm excited about Clark because just as a, a Worcester guy who uh, holds Abby Hoffman uh, near and dear to my heart, uh, you should never trust anyone over the age of 30. I'm long past that age, but I, yeah. I kind of believe that to be true, and I look to young people to tell me what I should be doing in life because I'm old and a fossil of one foot in the grave, <laughs> and no one should take my word for anything. It's it's younger cats that need to to help me figure out the world. One of the classes I teach. At at Clark is this uh, jazz biographies class. Okay. And I love teaching uh, about Miles Davis. I kind of hold Miles Davis as an example of how to, how to work your musical mm -hmm. craft um, because he had a very interesting way of uh, developing material. On every album, he worked with a different set of musicians that if you, if you trace the... Um, the lineage mm -hmm. each album the musicians uh he gets older and older and the musicians stay the same age they're always in they're always younger musicians mm -hmm. discovered um uh, chick korea and then keith jarrett and then before that um john coltrane so if you look at the albums each album he works with a set of really young fascinating musicians that he found kind of locally mm -hmm. and then yeah the album is an amazing success it becomes they they become global stars he moves on to the next album if you look at birth of the cool to kind of blue sketches of spain all the work he did in the quartets and quintets and then bitches brew where mm -hmm. you get keith jarrett and chick korea mm -hmm. on and on and on every album miles is getting older but the musicians are staying the same age, and it's that always going back to, okay, who are the best musicians for this project? Who mm -hmm. are the most interesting musicians for this next project? And I think that is a kind of college culture. It is a, a youthful way of making art to think that there's always another generation of musicians coming up. Yeah. What do they have to say? Mm -hmm. What is the most interesting thing that they're saying? And can I participate in that? Even though I'm getting older, I still want to participate and also embolden them. And, right. You know, not only as a teacher, but also as a fellow musician and composer. I want to be working with that, what that new generation has to say. And I don't want to be stuck in my own generation. Mm -hmm. I want to express the, the wisdom of that generation, but I want to be able to be free to kind of come out of it 
and work with younger generations, just like Miles did. Absolutely. And that, I mean, that's actually one place, I was smiling while you were talking, because I, I went down a, a weird jazz rabbit hole over the last couple of weeks, and that's one place that I think technology uh, and those algorithms actually do do a fantastic job. I, I stumbled across a j jazz piece I wasn't familiar with. You know, it was a documentary about graffiti artists in New York that they were just using as a backtrack. And it sent me down a Coltrane rabbit hole yeah. that by starting at point A in Google, with Google, it just led me on this path yeah. that uh, of artists I never would have come across before because yeah. it was feeding me based on this one yeah. starting point of interest and whatnot that... But yeah, man, that's uh, that's that 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 is the trick. I think is is reminding ourselves all uh, when it comes to creative endeavors that it's it's young people that have things figured out, and like we have everything figured out. But yeah. at the same time, that's the trick to being an adult, right? Is acknowledging you have no idea what's going on. You yeah. just can't let the kids find that out too early, otherwise right. the wheels fall off the bus. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm just curious, what else is going on at Clark musically that people should should know about? Well, another. Um, Another great aspect of the of the performance program is not just really cool people we bring in, like Friday night, uh, but all the wonderful concerts that the students are doing. Mm -hmm. So um, this is kind of like getting back to the perennial um, nature of youthful music making. Every semester, every spring, every fall, we have really fascinating student performances. These are performances that are curated and cultivated by mentors, by the faculty, but students are performing them. So, for example, we have a fabulous choral conductor, Kaylin Marcel Manson, and uh, Kaylin is going to be, Kaylin, uh, he, he did a concert in the fall with uh, the, the chorus, and I think it was at the end of November. I think it might Was this the one at St. Peter's? Yes. That was a great show. Okay. He'll be back at St. Peter's with the choir in uh, at the end of April, and I, I'm afraid that that is so far in advance. I can only remember what happens <laughs> happen next week. Sure, sure. Uh, so I don't know the exact date for that, but yeah. bring me back a week before, <laughs> and I will tell you exactly when it's happening. Um, seriously, though, check the. You just got to get on the Clark calendar and check it out because the choir will be uh, performing an epic concert under Kalen's tutelage in April, and then. The Sinfonia and the concert band will be performing. And again, this is literally 100 feet from Main Street. Right. So you can park, get a coffee at Acoustic Java, and walk up into campus and catch the show. And just and to be clear, so these shows are all open to the public? They're all open to the public, okay. and they're all 7.30. Uh, the, the, the standard is Friday and Saturday nights at 7.30 mm -hmm. and Sunday at 3. I'm telling you, you can literally just come to campus those times, mm -hmm. and there's a 80% chance... That on a Friday night or a Saturday night at 7.30 at Razzle Hall, there'll be a cultural event for you. So check the calendar. Make sure you're aware of what's going on. But also, come on a whim. Come just because you know that there's often an event, a concert happening on a Friday or a Saturday night. You know, I want, I want to... Uh I don't want to say I want to lodge a complaint because you may not be the person who needs to address <laughs> this complaint. I just want to share maybe my one frustration with music in Worcester yeah. in recent years, which is that like, so like I'll go see a show, I'll go see a Clark concert, I'll go see a jazz show, whatever, you know, once a quarter, whatever. I'm not there out there every, every week trying to look something up, nor do I expect that in the city of Worcester. Sure. But I'll tell you something, every opera, every opera that comes to the city, I will go and see. And you know what? There are many a year where there is no opera in the city of Worcester. Yeah. And I know that an opera is a giant thing and it costs a million, even with, uh, you know, semi-professional people, it costs a million dollars to yeah. stage. Yeah. But nonetheless, 
I feel I feel like I want to feel entitled to that. Yeah, and I'm not. <laughs> the city's no, not really doing it for point. me. It's a really good point. But you know, Boston doesn't even have an opera company. Yeah, yeah. You opera at, Boston folded a couple of years ago. Huh. You look at the calendar for operas in the area, and you're just like, yeah, maybe two months, two and a half months from now, somebody will do something someplace, some church basement. But that is totally indicative of where we are in the culture, where musicians just, just it's a parallel to what we we're talking about with musicians at home making all of their work on technology because the means of production has really diminished. Mm -hmm. So it's very hard to fund, just like you're saying, it's really hard to fund these big productions. And if if uh, the city of Boston does not have a, an opera house, which I think is a really difficult problem for Boston, it really ought to have an opera house that rivals the Met. Mm -hmm. It's a major city. Um, Odyssey Opera, Gil Rose conducts, that's really cool. Um, but that's new. And uh, I know Gil is working very hard to uh, make that a, a prominent part of the opera culture in Boston. But it's not solving your problem, which is where is that happening in Worcester and more regionally? Yeah, it's a big issue. Yeah, you know, I I I, uh, I hadn't thought about this when we were when I was playing for the show, but I want to give a shout out to Mickey O'Hara, Worcester Worcester resident, Worcester legend, who like programs. Uh, I feel like I'm trying to think of like outside of the colleges, what's the closest thing to like contemporary art music that somebody's doing? And I feel it's like his stuff that he programs at like basically a lot of house shows. Like New Year's Eve, they'll do like a 24 hour noise show or something. And much of this music is not music that I want to hear, but some, some of this music is. Um, I mean, I remember like, man, this must have been five or 10 years ago. Him and uh, Michael Thibodeau were doing this thing called the, the Cajun Cardu. Uh, society where they would just you know they at Nick's or some other bar in Worcester they would just be like and now we're going to do whatever two John Cage pieces and a couple of other things and that that was just like a huge amount of fun for the audience but I think something that was just not sustainable for them to be doing but um it's true a lot of it is the passion of the people right and yeah it's not like uh, I know Mike and it's not like a lot of that stuff was funded or, the, mm -hmm. or angel donors oh I'm or, sure not you know yeah absolutely this is, the, this is the blood sweat and tears of the people who love it yeah 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 anyway and then you know what I feel like the story of my experience in Worcester is uh you know that like I'll just discover I've been living in Worcester for 20 years and I just tomorrow morning I'll discover some totally fascinating subculture to me that's been in Worcester for 100 years that I never had any idea so I'm really hoping that as a result of this show somebody's going to email me and be like you dummy don't you realize two houses down from you is a secret opera house and you right. could be going to see the opera every single day I hope we inspire some person to like take up the mantle of auto-tune and create opera tune opera and tune. you're going to create a second wind in the opera universe by bringing that to SoundCloud by bringing you know the massive opera production into a space like this and uh, yeah you'll be able to it's all happening on this level the means of production I think has really shifted there's a I'll give a, um, a little shout out of my own there's a great book that I've been reading called um, Composing Capital by mm -hmm. Mariana Ritchie who is a professor at UMass Amherst and the book talks about how a lot of the culture has mistaken entrepreneurship for artistry. Mm -hmm. And that, as a consequence, a lot of artists, this is not just in music, but you know, artists from across all fields have had to spend a lot of time on the entrepreneurial end of things. And sometimes that is in sacrifice of the artistry. And so that finding that balance can be very, very tricky. And um, it's a great book. I would highly recommend it to anyone who is interested in how the economy of the arts works. That's what, you know, again, when I was asking what you, you view students as seeing or how they view the, the city, 
Um, you mentioned Mike Thibodeau, but like another good friend that uh, kind of came up with at the same time, Duncan Arsenal. I mean, somebody that uh, is gigging like seven days a week still, yes. uh, you know, yes. at, at various small venues like Vincent's yeah. or whatnot. And it's that's the stuff that blows me away is the folks that still just get so excited about playing their music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're just always out there doing it no matter what. And oftentimes starting to put some of the entrepreneurial side on the back burner because rediscovering that just playing music is what it's about. And yeah. uh, that's hard because yeah, it doesn't always pay out the way you might have hoped Absolutely. when you were a kid. And I, and I have so much uh, respect for musicians that are out there making that happen. And uh, the, free, the freelancing lifestyle uh, can be very tricky. Mm-hmm. It can be really difficult. If, if you don't have health insurance, uh, if you, maybe you're raising a family, and you're, and you're out there seven days a week. It can be really tricky. I think we need in, the culture really needs to develop some safety nets for those musicians yeah. because it, it, it's a, it's a safety net that you build in in recognition of the value that they're providing to the culture. Mm-hmm. You know, speaking of economics, I don't actually have a, a commodities news prepared this week for the first time in a long Please. time. But um, I do want to try this uh, overrated or underrated thing with okay. you. Yeah. And if we I haven't tried this before, if this goes poorly, we'll, we'll edit it. <laughs> we'll edit it out. Uh, overrated or underrated box mass in B minor? Uh, I I think Bach's work is appropriately rated. Um, I think it would. I think insofar as uh, the ability to listen to a lot of this stuff uh, live, it's probably underrated. It should be performed more. Um, but I think it's also celebrated in the culture appropriately. You know, we're coming up on, now I'm on a tangent now, but we're coming up on uh, Beethoven's 250th. In fact, I think this is the year that's the, the it's the huh. anniversary, 250th anniversary of Bach's, um, I better get this right, right? Um, his um, death. Mm-hmm. No, it's his birth. It's his 250th of his birth. Uh, I've got to get that right. Um, so there's a, you know, 250 is a big year. Mm-hmm. Everyone wants to celebrate his work. And this really interesting editorial came out in the Chicago Tribune couple months ago or weeks ago and it was uh, let's celebrate Beethoven's work by not playing it for a year (laughs) (laughs) so that we can retune our ears when we come back to it it'll be fresh give it a rest and also all the money we spend on playing his work we can put toward commissioning new works Mm -hmm. in honor of what Beethoven would want he would want the culture to continue he would have wanted lots of people writing music inspired by him (laughs) so let's use the 250th anniversary uh, of his birth uh, to, 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 to acknowledge that. And I think that's in line with this idea of, you know, whether epic works like Beethoven's Ninth or Bach's B minor mass are underrated or overrated. It's a, it's a touchy question, you know? I mean, they're so anthologized and they're so deep in the culture that it's hard even to understand the rating you know, it's like, is the Bible overrated? Or, <laughs> you know, or like Moby Dick. I mean, these things are beyond ratings, you know. Northampton, overrated or underrated? <laughs> oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. I think Northampton is gaining a lot of attention. It's becoming a, a prominent village or hamlet now. Um, and I think that it's probably still a little underrated. Okay. You know what? I I, got to tell you, I was living in Cambridge for 10 years, and I think I underrated Northampton. And when I moved out there, I realized that I actually really liked it. When you were living in Cambridge, did you really believe Northampton existed? 
See, there you go. It yeah. was not, no, not only was it underrated, it was not rated. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't on a map. It was right, exactly. There Where is that in Connecticut? Exactly. So, yes, it, it, I think my experience has been to underrate Northampton. I don't know if this is fair to ask, but Worcester, overrated or underrated? Oh, Worcester is totally underrated. That's I mean, right. But it <laughs> Hell is. yeah. But it is. I mean, it's, uh, I think it is really underrated. And uh, it's, this is a fabulous city. It's mm -hmm. absolutely, uh, I, but I do think that people don't um, give it its due. Like I say, I think I have the best of both worlds. I'm here every week. I'm eating at the amazing restaurants. I'm teaching at a fabulous uh, university in the heart of the city. I have this great Worcester experience, and then I also have the experience of other parts of Massachusetts, which you, and that allows me to know, by the way, that Worcester is underrated. So yeah, it really is. Um, it's a place that needs more um, attention and positive attention, and can grow in really fabulous artistic and creative ways. And to the extent that I can help that as a local professor, I'm totally into it. Paul Clay's Angelus Novus, overrated or underrated? Oh, then it's also, I would say, underrated. <laughs> Man, everything, I, everything you've mentioned is totally underrated. Um, uh, yeah, Paul Clay, I mean, amazing artist. And yeah, I'm totally, as, as you probably have inferred here, I have a monodrama on, and on his work, Angelus Novus. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I was, so this is not, a, this is not a, a, an artwork that I was previously familiar with before reading you know, about what you're up to. And I was looking at it online, at least, I I was just like I don't get why this is uh, why this is a thing. Um, well, the the reason I think it's a thing is because it found its way into other artistic media. So, yeah, I think on its own, Angelus Novus is like, what is that? And I looked at it and also was like, hmm, that's weird. Because uh, again, just like looking at a little drawing online, it's like, yeah. okay, this looks like a cool sketch that yeah. somebody did, yeah. and maybe like like not, but but not like a cool sketch that I'm like, ha, huh, like oh, right. Picasso, like yeah. so nice, but like yeah. a cool sketch that I'm like, all right, yeah. like you're heading in a good direction. <laughs> right, 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 right. Good work, Paul. Um, <laughs> Keep going, so, though. so um, okay. First, and I don't want to. Uh, well, I just want to say, first of all, I had an amazing opportunity to see the actual piece. Up close and personal. This is what I want to ask so you. That is something. It does have a really weird glow to it. Okay. Okay. So okay. that is really a weird thing, and and it is true that the internet kind of like two dimensionalizes everything. So, the actual piece is pretty mysterious. The, mm -hmm. the glow is strange, and it's hard to pinpoint. But after I had that experience, I went and looked it up a little bit and noticed that um, Walter Benjamin put together a um, a small. Uh, essay it's not even an essay it's a very small piece this is the next bullet point on my list actually okay. so we're getting <laughs> into walter benjamin's essay on paul's clay's yeah so so that um that essay it's not even an essay it's like part of i think it's part of um he, walter benjamin has a couple of uh essays on philosophy yeah and uh this is a very short piece of that larger collection of writings it's not very long, but it's a description of the Paul Clay. And because he owned this, because he bought yeah, this little right, nick, yeah, yeah. this little knickknack. Yeah, he was a huge. I know he was, and, and so then I thought, hmm. So he bought it. Uh, he must have loved it. And what is this writing? And uh, can I get into it? And I have really enjoyed some of Benjamin's writings. He has a really cool essay on art in the age of mechanical reproduction. Okay, which is like an epic piece on 
what happens when you stop performing things live and is there an aura that's lost when you just do like digital copies mm -hmm. of everything so that that has been like a really interesting essay for me and so i went into the benjamin and i thought okay let me read um on the paul clay and the description was super on point and weird and mm -hmm. eerie and i it was so artistic and so beautiful what he wrote that i thought you know i should set that to music so i put that writing of his to music and then I started to cobble together a couple of other similar pieces on texts on philosophy mm -hmm. that I thought were companions to the Walter Benjamin text that I had set. And that became this piece, Angelus, which is a monodrama. It's for soprano and an ensemble. And the soprano, much like that description of the Schoenberg I was talking about, the soprano speaks and sings and yells and whispers and all kinds of um, ways of using the voice are, are employed. And the, the, um, the piece itself uses that Angelus Novus of Paul Clay and Benjamin as a way of exploring the human condition. There's a way in which I really, I was very much compelled by Benjamin's journey. You know, my mom was a refugee in World War II. She was born in Berlin in 41 mm. and lived in Germany as a refugee uh, until 53 when she was finally able to immigrate with her family. And of course, Benjamin has a very similar, I mean, a worse experience where he, he killed himself in the throes of World War II and um, was displaced. So I think that I composed the work as a way of trying to understand my own mother's displacement and her history mm. and try to get closer to the other authors in and around uh, Benjamin's sphere psychologically, philosophically, and spiritually. All connected to that one image of the angel of the future. Mm. Mm. John, thanks for being on this show. I feel like we just did six shows. Do you want to come back every week? Sure, absolutely. <laughs> well, we got to do the underrated, overrated one because I feel like I have I have a lot more that's probably underrated, and we only got to like three or four things. I know, I know. Well, it's, you know, thanks for being on the show, and thanks yeah. also for your uh, thanks for making like the city like being one of the people who make the city a great city. Thank you so much. I do much. appreciate that's that. I do honor. appreciate that. Um, yeah, and uh, viewers of the Five Hundred Eight Show, we will be back here trying to make this city a great city next week, and. Uh, and maybe we'll figure out how to make the internet work in the process. Yeah, and even though you don't like my intro, Brendan, I think you like my outro, so I'll say my outro, which is, Worcester, remember, you can bench more than you think you can.